0: United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is poet and fiction writer Faith Sheeran. Faith is the author of seven books, She has received awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, Yadu, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and elsewhere. Faith's poems have been featured on the Writer's Almanac and American Life in Poetry. Her most recent poetry collection is called Lost Language. She grew up in Kitty Hawk on North Carolina's Outer Banks. She joins us today from Amherst, Massachusetts. Faith, welcome to the Seminary Explores. Thanks for having me, Katie. I would love it if you could actually start us off with a poem from your new collection. Um, the one I'm thinking about is called The Iceberg That Sank the Titanic. Would you be willing to do that? Sure.
1: The Iceberg That Sank the Titanic. The iceberg that sank the Titanic could be described with math, the 10th of its total mass, which was visible above water, or the eight miles it traveled per day, riding ocean currents and prevailing winds from the Western coast of Greenland. You could measure the temperatures during the thousands of years when it shaped itself from snow, or you could try instead to describe it with language a sculpted white island that sang as it scraped against lunar tides. I dreamed of icebergs after you died because I was aware of the difference between what could be seen when I entered a room and what was hidden beneath the surface. Only 1% of icebergs survive long enough to reach shipping waters on their southward journey past the coastlines of Baffin Island and Labrador. And only 1% of the population is born with your valve defect on the port side of the heart. I could tell you 1,500 people died when the Titanic sank, but this would convey nothing of how it felt to stand on that doomed deck under a full moon on an April night while the band played Nearer My God to Thee. It does not describe the widows aboard the Carpathian in wet tea dresses and furs watching the cork from life belts float beside half-sunken deck chairs. I could say it was October 31st when you were wheeled down a cold corridor to the last hours of your life, but this would not convey the way the children dressed in wings and masks passed me with their sacks of candy while crimson leaves wept in our street.
0: Oh, thank you. Yes. And of course today is Halloween. It's the 31st.
1: It is. It is. (laughs) I know. It was a holiday I used to like, and now and now the stuff goes up around the neighborhood and and it just feels like something very sad is about to happen.
0: Of course. Of course. And one of the things about this poem that's so interesting is um, the reminder of I would call it like personal or private grief and collective grief you have something big happening to a lot of people but it doesn't happen to each person in the same way right?
1: Right, that's a great way of describing it I like the Titanic as a metaphor, I've used the Titanic a lot in my poems I mean it's it's a riveting story for so many reasons. The editor of this particular book of poetry actually helped me take out a couple of Titanic poems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, I know. There's so much about it. Um, Right. But in this case, everything had to happen exactly as it did for this iceberg to meet this ship. Um, And the ship with its, you know, a big story about it being this unsinkable thing and of course the very first thing it does is sink. Um anyway.
0: And this um the description of what is seen and what is hidden that applies to so much, doesn't it? Um what's what's apparent and what's not.
1: Uh Exactly. I mean Maybe before this happened to me, I didn't think about it so much when I was meeting people, but I do now that that there's what you can see of their lives, and then there's everything you can't see. And, you know, I, I joined a grief group after my husband died, and I suddenly realized that you're just everywhere all the time with people who are m- missing someone. There's just, you're in a scene, and there's everyone who's missing and everything that's missing, and that's true for everybody past a certain
0: age. Um, yeah. 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 Very true. And speaking Actually, my yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead.
1: My my grandfather came to visit me once, and he was in his nineties. And I I needed to put him on a train back to his town in North Carolina from Baltimore. And he was looking through his address book for somebody who could come and pick him up from the train station. And he was showing me that he was like there. There were loads of people. He said, but none of them could make it to the train station. They were all dead. <laughs>
0: Like they literally couldn't make it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they literally couldn't make it, but there was something great about it. There was a way in which he had learned to live in the world that was sort of partially inhabited by ghosts and, and then, you know, whoever was left. Oh,
0: wow. um, Yeah. Well, how about the title of this collection, Lost Language? Speaking of lost, how did you arrive at that title?
1: So, I guess the very first thing that struck me, I mean, like the day after... My husband died was we had known each other since we were in high school so we had this just elaborate private language that I think everybody has if they've been in a you know a long-term relationship I mean I have it with my parents I have one with my siblings Sure, you know it's the stuff that you all you, you do things together and then you have these ridiculous you know sort of inside jokes about stuff that happened anyway he and I just had an enormous lexicon of those things. And I realized that I was the last, I was the last speaker of that language that we had shared. And it was just incredibly lonely. I realized I couldn't walk up to anybody else in the world and say, you know, a whole range of things and have them know what in God's name I was talking about. So um, so then I guess also we we shared poetry. I mean, we, we read poetry, wrote poetry, you know, it's a big part of our connection, especially when we met and when we were young. So I think the impetus with this book was to to write one book for him, one book addressed to him, one book where I could talk to him. You know, I missed talking to him. So
0: well, and the interesting thing about that is you're you're writing to him, but those of us reading the book then are reminded of these particular languages that we have with, you know, in our own relationships and the things that we lose and how in some situations you really feel like a, a type of uh, refugee. Even when you're in familiar circumstances, you look around and you can't use these sort of shortcuts and <laughs> keywords yeah. and phrases, you know, that are so loaded
1: Because they're great, aren't they? They're really wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a good point.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, so I mean, i I wrote most of I wrote the poems pretty fast in the six months or year after he died, and um, and then I went to Yado and just sat for a month trying to clean them up and put them all together.
0: And how was was, that experience? I just have to say out of sheer curiosity, because it's such a, you know, this, the amazing famous (laughs) yado,
1: Right. And they had never let me in before. Can I just say, (laughs) I mean, I've been trying my whole life to get in and suddenly they let me in right after, right after my husband died. And so I went and I was, I was in a huge mess, you know, and it's a pretty social place. Like there's a, you know, a breakfast and a dinner. There's Mm -hmm. a drinking hour kind of before (laughs) dinner. Um, and so so I was in all those places and I've really looked, I think, a little bit sweaty and befuddled. And uh, I, I mean, I found after he died, I had trouble, I had trouble reading. I also had trouble just sort of, um, you know, an ordinary conversation. People would be talking about books and movies and authors and stuff that used to be super interesting to me, but my brain was fuzzy i mean <laughs> so so i was like that and i had bats in my room can i say i no. mean they're famous for these bats but i had i had like a pair of bats in the closet of the room i was sleeping in and a portrait that tended to fall off the wall during the night
0: oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> and Ugh. i had a faint i had a fainting couch which i used you know um i laid down on it a lot when i couldn't figure out what to do about a poem. I had a nice time. It's a great, I mean, I think it's a great place when you're not, you know, a grieving widow.
0: (laughs) Everybody was really nice to me. It was, you know. um, It it almost sounds like the bats were kind of a a certain presence there, right? Like a certain other living things nearby.
1: (laughs) Exactly. No, it's true. And I, I would open up the door to the room. My room was called Mountain View, but there, a forest had grown up in like the hundred years since it had gotten that name. So you couldn't see the mountains from my room. You could see a fountain, kind of. But anyway, I was, yeah, I had a balcony <laughs> that I shared with another writer who was sure that she was being visited by ghosts at night. Like we would meet on the balcony and she, she was getting like a horrible night's sleep every night. I sort of wonder how much writing she got done. Um, oh my. <laughs> right, because the house is supposed to be haunted. I didn't have a problem with that part. Um, but the bats, yeah, and they had these. I'm fishing nets essentially that people were using to try and sort of catch bats and fling them out the door. There was something great and spooky about it and it's so full of the history of writers who could not love being there. It was it was fun.
0: Well yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> writers who could not love being there (laughs) yeah and it was a
1: good diversion honestly you know because most of the time after tom died i was just alone alone i mean my daughter had left for college the the timing of the thing was what it was you know we just um so that i went from being a person and i mean honestly like the year before we'd been living on a mountain in west virginia and it was all three of us in the house all the time my daughter was um Going to like an online high school, so so she was home and my husband was working most of the time. You know, by by Zoom, his company was in Australia, so sometimes he'd go away for a business trip and then he'd come home again. So we were just up there together, the three of us. We had a pair of dogs. You know, I had this whole life, and then and then it was just it was just me. You know, just me and one of the dogs, and so it was just a huge it was a huge change.
0: What a, a lot contrast. of silence.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was used to being kind of in relationship with other people and yeah, I suddenly just had to really get used to just my own my own company.
0: Well, I'm thinking about uh the the fact that today is um Samhain, um, the festival celebrated by the ancient Celts. Well, it's supposed to be roughly around October 31st, right? Uh, the, right. It marks the transition between the year's lighter and darker halves. Um, there's You have another poem that actually mentions this in this collection, um, The Day of the Dead. Would you mind reading that? Sure. I'll read
1: it for you. The Day of the Dead... Your dying took place during Sawmain and the Day of the Dead. So while you walked through the sliding glass doors of a hospital in Colorado, cattle were brought down from summer pastures and marigolds were arranged, their bright fragrance attracting the departed. When you described the strange ache in your chest, picnic baskets were unpacked and altars were erected, names inscribed On sugar skulls and while you waited for someone to interpret the language of your EKG there was a dancing in a distant plaza in dresses made of shells and the future was divined using apples and hazelnuts while you were dying my love the boundaries between this world and the other world opened the bonfires were lit and it was winter When you were told you would need emergency surgery and the chaplain was brought in, ghosts emerged from the cave of cats. And during your six hour operation, when your heart was stopped and restarted, your blood spinning through machines, the people of a certain village lit candles and floated away in winged boats to an island of graves at the center of a lake. My darling, I liked summer light, but you, who were born during a blizzard, preferred darkness. As you lay dying, doors blew open, and giant kites rose over an open field, their paper tails aflutter.
0: Oh, thank you. Sure. This is another poem that is that is so specific and yet so timeless too it's taking us back centuries and it's also about one person right yes
1: i mean it seemed incredibly meaningful to me that he he was a person who was really aware of metaphors and it it's. I I don't know if we get to choose the moment when we die, but he really did die during the moment when that veil is supposed to open between the living and the dead. And it was something I thought about a lot. Um, I mean, I had, and I have tended not to be a really religious person. Um, I had this experience that he was at a conference in Colorado and I was, I was at home in Massachusetts, and I write about this, I guess, a little bit in the book, but I was out walking our dog, and it was Halloween, so kids were out on lawns with their little paper sacks of candy, and I had this very strange sensation, I mean, the sensation that he was with me. Um, And for a moment, kind of a wind blew, and I looked onto a lawn, and I had a real vision of him as he was when he was young and it seemed that he he was trying to show me something and he was opening a window and i had the the feeling that he couldn't breathe before he opened the window but once he'd opened the window he could um i mean that's all that's all i was able to get and i had no idea why i was seeing it um I thought, you know, maybe he's on a plane coming home and he's having a dream. I mean, sometimes we would have, you know, funny stuff, but this was really so powerful and so different from anything that had happened to me spiritually in my life before. And, you know, maybe a half hour later, my phone rang and it was a doctor in Colorado, And, you know. And um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that it was incredibly sad but it was incredibly powerful to me i've worried about dying my entire life i mean i'm sure nobody you know wants to die we all don't really know what's going to happen when we do but there was something about him coming to me because i i think at that point he was already being rushed to surgery i'm just you know sure his spirit was already sort of wandering the fact that he still had one and that he came to me has actually been a real source of comfort. If that makes any sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the sort of thing, too, that as time goes by, you'll, I can imagine you'll also be seeing that differently as you, as you continue to change. And, you know, every time that you look back on it, what you feel about it and what you think about it, um, you know, might be also evolving, too.
1: Right. Altered. But the fact that he could, I mean that that's just a revelation to me. You know, that, that he could come to me like like that and that I could I could feel what he meant to convey was really was really incredible.
0: Absolutely. Wow.
1: I've sensed obviously I've done a ton of re- I mean, I guess I'm not the only person this has happened to, but it is it's a it's a sort of life changing thing.
0: Yes. And those, and those are the details of your situation and his situation, and they are certain things about them are shared, but certain things are just. I'm thinking of the German word "einmalig." You know, one, it was, it was that that one moment. Yeah, I like that. So this is going to seem like a like a large. <laughs> a large question to leap to, but I'm really curious about what it's like for you right now as a poet and someone who's such a keen observer of, you know, yourself up close and also just the world around you. Um, What is it like to be uh, a poet living and writing in in the U.S. right now at this time and the way things are unfolding?
1: Okay. Yeah. Let me think about that. Um, I I suppose that I feel I was personally just like everyone else. I've been really profoundly affected by COVID. Um, and I keep trying to talk about the effect of COVID with my friends. You know, we, I mean, we all, we all tended to stay in. We were all frightened we were all trying not to spread the virus and there's a point after which um i mean i was already kind of staying in a lot (laughs) and so and so so, you know you start eliminating like most things i was hiking my daughter came home which helped a lot you know um she she was home for part of it It, but this the social isolation meant that i sort of lost the ability to talk to the folks at the grocery store you know that like small talk that you make with people just in regular life I felt a little sweaty and weird that hasn't quite gone away for me if I can tell you the truth I and there are loads of things that I loved doing that were communal activities that I haven't gone back to because I've just still been afraid of the variant afraid of giving it to my parents afraid you know just afraid I guess there's just this this and I can I say that I don't have like incredible hope that there's ever going to be this return to the world that we knew before this. And I'm maybe not speaking to the, the right part of, I mean, I'm not sure what you meant by life in the U S, but that, see, so that's been my experience for the past, you know, whatever it is, the year, the year and a half, the couple of years that we've all been living like this. I mean, it's, there've been good things that have come out of it, but there's a lot of stuff that's just really hard. My family tried to get together in the summer and we all confess that we felt a little, Freaked out, you know. We're kind of anxious people to begin with, and we've all been kind of in our own separate pods doing, you know. It just even leave the landscape that you get used to it starts to feel tricky. So, I guess that's its effect on my personal life, but my writing life, my writing life changed a little bit. I started writing fiction during COVID, and um, I have a novel coming out in August.
0: Fantastic.
1: Right, so so it, that was a change as well, and I think part of it was that the, the amount of time, <laughs> the amount of time that I was spending by myself, <laughs> you know, because the, I mean, I love uh, poetry is my first love for sure, but I was able to fit it in always, you know, if I was taking my daughter to um, to school, if I was, you know, teaching, if we had, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in our personal life, you know, how you can set aside an hour a day. And you can still be a poet. Um, and I found you know, trying to write fiction just seemed to me like it would eat up oodles of time, which it does. But but I had that during COVID. So.
0: <laughs> well, and sometimes there are there are certain things that you want to say that also kind of will tell you that they need a different form, right? Did you also maybe feel that way with what you were writing about? That it said, okay, I I need a I need a little more space. I need a different form.
1: That's a great way of describing it. I really like that, Katie. Yes. That's exactly how I felt. Um, like, I wanted to tell a story for once, not, yeah, not peer in at a single image or unpack a, an image or look at a, a tiny scene. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to tell a story.
0: Wow. Well, I will look forward to that next summer. That's great. <laughs> that is really good I'll, news. I'll send you one. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Well, one last thing before I let you go. Um, I was reading an interview, um, the one from the Writer's Almanac with Joy Biles, um, and you were talking about influences, which is always so interesting to hear about things that influence other writers. And, you know, you mentioned uh, children's books, some of the children's books that you were reading to your daughter, especially. And yes. you also mentioned and I just I appreciate each one of these so much. So I just I just have to tell you um, when you said that you like Bob Dylan's lyrics, Walden yes. Gray's um, Spalding Gray's monologues, certain David Sedaris essays, and Woody <laughs> Allen movies, and the photographs of Diane Arbus and Sally Mann. And you know, when I, when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I can sort of get s- the taste of some of these things in your poetry. And I was, I was delighted to, to read each of these <laughs> references. But anyway, is there anything else you'd like to say about, you know, things that have influenced uh, your writing?
1: okay, uh, actually, I'm so glad you read that list, you know, because when I'm talking, I can never bring this stuff up, you know, and that interview, she just sent me questions, and I sort of ruminated about what what had really influenced me. I think all of that is still, oh, that's still true. I still turn to all of those people and their work. I have watched a lot of Northern Exposure, you know, during COVID. Do you like that show? I loved that show in the 90s, and so I got it on I play it on my DVD player. And there's something about that fictional town in Alaska and and the way in which they dream each other's dreams. You know, there's a woman, Ruth Ann, who dances on her own grave. Um, there's that wonderful episode where they help their doctor, Fleischman, find enough Jews um, to help him. Oh, what's he doing? He's... He, he's trying to, is it Shiva? I'm going to say the wrong thing, but he's, um, his uncle Mammy has died oh, yes, and, yeah. and there, there aren't enough um, Jews in their community to, to help him. And so the, the whole town gets together on this quest, um, you know, to help him properly mourn his uncle. They're just these really, they're these beautiful stories and you know, the characters are quirky and they're all different ages. And it seems like their spiritual lives matter more than what they're doing for work or you you don't you don't have to be an accomplished business person to be in this show or, you know, you're just a person. That's Um, such
0: a good point. Yeah. And it really is. Even though you've got a, a fairly small set of characters, they are all different ages and they're quite and there's something about that show that 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 defies expectations like people are a little different than you expect, you know, each of those characters are
1: yes exactly and so i love it there i mean i found it was a place i could go i did this too during covid you know how you could put something you know on netflix or in the dvd player and you you could go to some imaginary world so right the really good shows started to really be a place that you can imaginatively enter. Um, and I was, I was really grateful for Northern
0: Exposure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Well, Faith, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. They were great questions. <laughs> You've been listening to The Seminary Explorers. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest has been writer Faith Sheeran. Visit her website, faithshearin.com. that's S-H-E-A-R-I-N, and visit the publisher of her latest book at press53.com. Thanks so much, Faith. Thank you. You have been listening to The Seminary Explores, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania we invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.